Well, good morning. My name is Ryan Moore. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'm one of the pastors on staff and just happy to be here with you this morning, uh, this Easter morning. Um, If you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Luke. We're going to stay in Luke's gospel for our message this morning. But we're going to be in the back of Luke, the last chapter, chapter 24. If you're using the Pew Bible, which is the blue book in your pew, you'll find our text on page 885. This account is unique to Luke. In other words, no, uh, no other gospel writer includes this account in their story of the resurrection. It's one of my personal favorites, and as someone who drew preaching duties on Easter morning, you're going to listen to what I want to talk about, so <laughs> enjoy. Um, but this is, this is the day of resurrection, okay? So just to give you a little bit of context here, and um, here's Luke's account of one uh, siding of the resurrected Jesus, and that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word found in the book of Luke, chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk. And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem. Who does not know the things that have happened there in these days. And he said to them what things. And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth. A man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Verse 25, and he, being Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, the original disciples, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, 
the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Moving down to verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this day to worship you. And certainly because it is Easter, we are reminded all the more of your promise, the promise of all promises wrapped up in your resurrection what that means for us. We pray now, though, that as we listen to your word and as we um, contemplate these things, that your spirit would go out, that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we would see and hear things otherwise we could not, uh, that we would change uh, as people um, affected by your truth and your gospel. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Well, if you uh, look at your handout, your bulletin there, you'll notice uh, there are three points there. And I'm just going to jump right into these three points. No elaborate, fancy introductions. Let's get right to the story. We're going to look at what confuses us about the resurrection this morning from this passage. um, How we gain confidence in the resurrection. And then what the resurrection tells us is true. So there's three things. Let's get the first one. What confuses us about the resurrection As we just got done reading, Luke records details here on this first Easter to two what I would call B-team disciples. These are not the 12. These are people who have been following him for whatever reason at a distance. I don't know, but we just, we don't know much about them in scripture. One of the, one of the names is Cleopas. We don't know the other person that is traveling with him. And they're going from Jerusalem where all these events have taken place. And they're walking the road to Emmaus where Jesus joins them in their travels and enters into their discussion about what had taken place over the week and even today. Scholars and historians agree that Jesus showed himself to over 500 people after his death over about 40 days. I find that fascinating. And as far as data and evidence goes, no movement, no religion, or any other account of resurrection by somebody comes close to the number of people who testified to seeing Jesus. And Luke records one of those accounts here for us, which we just read. And the first thing that strikes us is that somehow Cleopas and his traveling companion were kept from recognizing Jesus. They knew who he was. They had been around him, but for some reason they don't recognize him. And we are unsure as to how or why that is possible. But as Jesus asked them what it is they are talking about, Cleopas, and this, this, this is what drives the narrative in the beginning, gives him an account that is almost perfect. It is what we might say, the gospel according to Cleopas, right? It has details in it that he was, show us that he was close to Jesus and his 12 disciples. He is even aware of the women who visited the tomb that morning only to find it empty and being greeted by angels. 
But in verse 21, we discover the tone of Cleopas's gospel. One of sadness and ultimate confusion. And the words, but we had hoped. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Whatever Cleopas's expectations of Jesus, right? Uh, the Jewish understanding of the Messiah, redemption, forgiveness, and the promise of God to deliver his people, whatever they were, they died along with Jesus that Friday. We had hoped. And this road they are on, among many things, is blanketed now with the confusion brought about by unmet expectations and what they hoped God would do for them in Jesus. We can understand this confusion, can't we, right? The confusion brought on by having expectations for what you think someone is going to do for you, only to find out none of that is true. Um, Just talk to anybody that's been married for at least a month or two. They will tell you. For Cleopas and his friend, though, their confusion is brought on because resurrection wasn't the way their Messiah would win the day. They had no category for it. In one sense. Resurrection wasn't the way God would put the world to rights. Resurrection wasn't the way that the serpent's head in Genesis 3 would be crushed. And as a result for now, the gospel according to Cleopas isn't even a gospel. And it's not a gospel because it has no good news in it. Cleopas' gospel is a Good Friday gospel. It is not an Easter gospel. For now, though, Cleopas is a person for whom the tomb is not empty. And he is not a person of somebody whom resurrection is possible. And without the resurrection, all of Cleopas' stories, including all of ours this morning, are stories this morning that begin with the phrase, We had hoped. Our confusion this morning, however, though similar to Cleopas, is different. Where Cleopas and the disciples were confused because they just didn't have, excuse me, the death and resurrection of Jesus in mind. We do. We do. Right? We have the full story in scripture. We have heard it before. And I suspect that many of you here this morning have heard this story before. You see... Where Cleopas was caught off guard by God doing something that he had never really imagined or considered. We are caught off guard by God doing anything at all. Here's what I mean. See, we either think we are not really that bad. And if God exists in the first place, why would we need to go to these links? Why would he need to go to these links in the first place to quote unquote save us? Or we buy into Christianity a little But matters of sin and forgiveness and resurrection are suspect and irrelevant. Why all this blood and death and magic tricks? This is the first type of confusion. But the second type of confusion is we do believe that God exists, but we don't think we're worth the lengths that he went to rescue us, to forgive us, to make us his own. And here is what's confusing is not the event of the resurrection itself, but the kind of love that the resurrection points to. That is what is confusing to us. We hear about Jesus and the resurrection and our hearts say, what? Me? 
The old hymn writers got at this type of confusion in their writing. Philip Bliss in The Man of Sorrows, What a Name, which we sang on Friday, writes, Guilty, vile, helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he, but full atonement can it be? Right? Hallelujah. What a savior. You want to finish the the line. Charles Wesley in 1738 wrote, Can it be? With the chorus singing just that, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? That confusion. What, how is this possible? And even more recent, Stuart Townend and how deep the Father's love for us writes, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Why should I gain from this reward? His reward. I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom, right? What's confusing, if we get down underneath the surface, is not the resurrection itself, but the kind of love that it communicates. Could God love me this much, right? Could anybody love me this much? That is your question this morning. And the one that houses, I would suggest, all of our questions in our lives. Am I loved? The empty tomb says yes. But our hearts say it can't be. (laughs) It can't be. I cannot open myself to this idea. There's no way I matter this much. And see, friends, that is not a data problem, right? That is a spiritual problem. Look, empirical evidence and facts that prove the resurrection, look, that is not our problem, Those exist in very convincing and powerful ways. Our problem, and I would lump Cleopas' problem in with it at this point, is not an empirical one, but is it a spiritual one. Which is why, like Cleopas in this story, we do not recognize this love. We do not think it exists, even when it's walking right next to us. Jesus must open our eyes to both our need for him, And his love for us. Okay, well, how does he do that, right? How do I move from these polar sides that you describe about the resurrection to where I might have confidence in the resurrection, you might be asking. And this gets to the second point here, how we gain confidence in the resurrection. How do we do this, right? How do we begin to take a step towards having confidence and trust and believing in the resurrection of Jesus. You have to know who Jesus is. And how do we do that? Well, Jesus tells us in this text. It's not flashy. It's not exciting maybe to some of us. But it's actually scripture. In other words, you can't move from unbelief to belief or uncertainty to confidence in the resurrection by trying to study and learn about Jesus from a distance. You have to zoom in, if you will, because the closer that you get to Jesus, the more the resurrection makes sense. <clears throat> here's, what, here's what I mean. Last year, we had some work done um, on our house, uh, primarily in our kitchen, mostly updating some cabinets and reworking the floor plan to make it more functional. When the work was done, the company who did the work, which did a fantastic job, by the way, came in and took professional pictures. And if you've ever put a house on the market, you know what these professional pictures might look like. When they were done with the pictures, they sent us the pictures. And I remember opening the file and looking at these pictures, and I had no idea what I was looking at. In other words, it, was, it looked so good. 
and, and the reason I had no idea that I, what I was looking at was because I have four daughters under eight and they love to destroy everything that I love. But we live in our house, right? We use our kitchen. Stools knock up against cabinet paint. The new floors get messy. And see, if you were going to come over today for Easter dinner and you got a little bit closer, further than those pictures reached, right, you would begin to see all of the imperfections. The pictures hide all that. Why? Because they're from a distance, among other things. What's real is what you see the closer you get. That's not just true for kitchens, right? It's true for us. I can look one way from this distance, but the closer that you and I get together, right, the more my imperfections begin to show. You put me under a microscope, and you probably won't want to ever talk to me again. This is also true, though, about our hearts, spiritually speaking, to take it further. There are things in us and about us, how we think what we think about, what our true motives are that we do not want anyone to know about. Look, I can dress it up. I can put the bow tie on, the whole thing, but that ain't changing, right? The reality of my prejudices, my biases, my anger, my jealousy, my lust, my pride, etc. In many ways, I'm just like those professional pictures, right? The more distance, the better. Here's the point. In stark contrast, Jesus comes to us in the complete opposite way. That is, unlike messy kitchens and human hearts, the closer you get to Jesus, the more beautiful and the more real he becomes. The more you understand him and who he is and what he has come to do for you. The more we are open to his truth and to his grace, the more his death and his resurrection begin to make sense to us. How then do we get close to Jesus? How do we zoom in, if you will, Ryan? Well, he tells us. Through his word, through the scriptures. Look with me again at what Jesus says there in verse 25. It's one of my favorite verses in all, in all the Bible. And maybe because I'm a pastor and somewhat of a, a, a seminary nerd, I would love, if I could go anywhere in time, I'd love to go back and, and visit this conversation and hear him talk and expound the scriptures about himself. Right? Listen. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets had spoken... Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Here it is in verse 27. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all the things concerning himself. Verse 44 tells us the same thing. This is to his disciples. Then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What is he saying? He is saying that all of scripture, look, Moses and the prophets, which would be the entire Old Testament, is about one thing. He is saying it is about me. It is not a self-help book. It is not a book about how to live good or a, 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 a you know, moral life. It is a love story. It is a story of rescue. And if you want to know me, Jesus says, if you want to have confidence in the resurrection, you have to understand this book. You have to understand the Bible and what it is about. One scholar, Pastor Philip Ryken, in his commentary 
of Luke makes this observation. He says, rather than pointing to his resurrection body, first of all, Jesus pointed to the scriptures that pointed to himself. And then he quotes this 19th century pastor, Denzel Young, who wrote this. I should have imagined that the risen Lord would be independent of the Bible, but no, he cleaves to it with all the old affection. He came up with the grave, up from the grave and hastened to the holy book. Jesus is saying, if you want to understand me, if you want to get close to me, if you want confidence in my death and resurrection for you, don't look for signs or dreams or visions. Go to scripture where I am on every single page. You cannot understand Jesus without the Bible. But there's also something else that's true here that he is showing us. You can't understand the Bible if you don't know Jesus. See, they go together. Otherwise, the Bible becomes this journal that you found on one side of the road, right? You pick it up at first. Not this Bible, this journal. Did I say journal? It becomes, let me start over. It becomes this journal that you find on the side of the road. And maybe you pick it up at first. And maybe this is more guys because we don't do journals necessarily. I'm sorry if that's just offended a lot of people. But right, you think you're going to get this journal and open it up and you're going to, there's going to be all this juicy gossip in here. So you start turning the pages and reading it. But what ultimately happens, right? You lose interest. Why? Well, one, you have no idea who's writing this thing. But more importantly, you have no idea who they're writing about. What seemed intriguing at first glance becomes boring and irrelevant in no time. The Bible is the same way to us, unless you know who it's from, but more importantly, who it is about. The Bible will never make sense to you. But who is Jesus saying the Bible is about in Luke chapter 24? It's him. It's him. From Genesis to Revelation, it's one story and he is at the center of it. Let me use an example for you before we move on. Um, I remember growing up listening uh, over and over to the major stories of the Bible. And one in particular that, that, that came out as I was studying this was the, the story of David and Goliath. And who, as a kid, doesn't love the story of David and Goliath? And there are really like two ways that you can talk about this story. And I don't know if you can relate to this, but the way that I was always told this story is that as David, you know, goes to, to, to fight this Philistine, this giant, and he takes his sling and, and, and he, he slays the giant. That if you have faith like David too, then you can ask God to defeat the giants in your life as well. Sounds pretty good, Right. I don't know if this is the way that you grew up hearing the story. Perhaps maybe <laughs> I did put this, I uh, just literally heard this one. Uh, you got to fight the good fight like David here, so don't drink. That was quote unquote one of the things I remember hearing uh, growing up. I had to, I had to get this in. Um, apparently, this Sunday school teacher did not make it to Bathsheba, but that's a story for another day, right? All right. You, you, what's the point? We grew up sometimes hearing these stories and the hero of the story, the point of the story becomes us. This is about the giants in your life, friends. And if you have faith, you can do this. But if all scripture is about Jesus, how does that change the story? Well, it becomes about David pointing us to Jesus, right? By showing us that one day God would fight a battle and win. A battle that you cannot fight and win. Right? It's the battle over our greatest enemy, death. 
And like David for Israel, who watches from the sidelines, by the way, that's where you and I sit, from the sidelines. Like David for Israel, someone has to be substituted for you. Someone has to fight for you. And it's Jesus. And you know what that fight looks like? It looks like him dying and victory looks like resurrection. David and Goliath is not in the Bible to help me fight the giants in my life. It is there to show me God's promise through one to come like David who will redeem and rescue his people. It's about what God is doing, not David, not me. (laughs) Look, Even in David's life, right, when you get close and personal to it, how messy does it get? Which is one of the best parts of the Bible, right? You get to, you don't have to skip over those parts or excuse them. You can kind of just, oh, God, yeah, me too, me too. That love like this is is real. It begins to sink in, and this is what... We begin to see when we begin to understand the Bible as being about Jesus. These stories are real and they don't make David or us bigger, friends. They make God bigger. Which begins to set us up and prepare us for what we're celebrating today. That's how we zoom in. right? That's how we get closer to Jesus to know and understand his love for us. His death and his resurrection specifically. By seeing him in the scriptures. That love like this for you is real. And this is what he is telling Cleopas and his followers. And this is how we, too, move from confusion to confidence in the resurrection. Well, what will we find if we do this, right? What will happen if we zoom in, if you will, if we, if we pursue Jesus in the scriptures, if we get to know him, what will happen? And this gets to the third point, what the resurrection tells us is true. What we will find as we move closer to Jesus is grace. Because what the resurrection tells us is true. Is that God dies for the best and the worst of you. And then he raises for the love and for the life of you. What happened to Cleopas and the others when Jesus showed them the scriptures? Verse 32, look with me one last time. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures, right? Did not our hearts burn? What happened? That's what happened. What does that mean? It means they experienced grace, friends. They saw for the first time that Jesus didn't come to overthrow Rome. He didn't come to lead Israel into some military victory over their oppressors. They saw for the first time that Jesus came to overthrow their ultimate oppressor, death. They heard Jesus explain the David and Goliath story for the first time, probably. They saw where the real battle needed to take place, not out here, but in here, in the hearts of men. But perhaps the biggest part of this gospel, they saw that they were helpless to win and in no way deserved the victory that he had won on their behalf. This is what the scriptures tell us, and it's grace. And when you see it and you hear it, it causes your hearts to burn. Because what you never imagined could be true, right? That you are far worse than you'll ever know, but you're more loved than you ever dare to dream. 
is everything this story is about. That Jesus died for the best and worst of us and was raised again for the love and for the life of us. He thinks you're worth it. Even when you don't. This is what the resurrection tells us is true. Would we believe it? Would we believe it? I'll finish with a story, um, a dating story between Ada and I. And let me just disclaimer, two disclaimers. This is not the weightiest story in our lives. Um, There are worse ones than this. This is just the one I'm willing to tell you on Easter morning. Second, uh, this is horrible dating advice. So let's make this uh, what, you know, descriptive, not prescriptive. How about that? You know, don't do this. Um, But uh, you'll understand the point of the story, hopefully, uh, as we wrap up here. Um, When Ada and I uh, dated each other, uh, before we got married, obviously, there was... Um, this one moment, um, more than one moment of our relationship that I'll, I'll never forget. And here's why we didn't date well at all. Um, and that's, you know, that's a story for another day, but I was driving over to her apartment in Knoxville and, uh, and I was driving over there to break up with her. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I met her outside her apartment. She had no idea that this was coming. Uh, this was a confusing and difficult time because I knew I cared for her. Uh, but I just didn't know where this relationship was going, right? And so as I pulled up to her apartment, um, as I go to knock on the door, she comes out, and she's got that wonderful smile, and I know what I'm about to say, and how this is going to land, and, well, you know where this goes. We talked outside, probably close to an hour, tears, frustration, mainly my tears, right? Frustration and sadness uh, all over the place. I don't remember much about our conversation, to be perfectly honest with you, because when it was all over, right, Ada invited me in for lunch. Yeah, what? That is all I remember. Um, I remember the strawberries she cut for me that I ate, right? I, I remember sitting across the table just utterly confused. If I was confused driving over there at this point in time about the state of our relationship, I was beyond confused at the level of kindness that this person was showing me, right? Who does this? I had no category for this. I had no category for this type of grace in my life. I had no expectation, right, that this would be received this way. I was expecting to get punched. I would have deserved that. That would have been fine. I couldn't understand it, and to this day, I'm positive I didn't deserve any of it. Now, let me stop there. I hesitate to share this story, obviously, because I don't want you to think that Ada is Jesus, okay? I'm just... Just let me just disclaim that. Don't go down that road, right? That's why I said tell this. But, but I, I tell you the story, and at least it speaks truth to me, so I hope that it lands for you. I, I tell it because of this. God will always exceed our expectations, right? He will always exceed our expectations, and that is good news. He is the one who has to give us categories of what love is is of what we are truly worth. Resurrection love is not self-evident, friends. Grace is not self-evident. It has to be shown to you. You have to receive it. Because we do not have categories for this type of love, this type of grace. Our problems this morning are not whether we are loved, right? Our problem is that we don't believe we are lovable to the degree 
that someone would die for us and then that someone would defeat death on our behalf and be raised to prove it. But Jesus longs, longs to come alongside us in our confusion and in our doubts and our horrible expectations for what we think is going to happen and the categories that we don't even have or don't even exist in our life. Whatever road we find ourselves on, right? He loves to come alongside of us and he loves to take. All of those broken, we had hoped stories and define, that define our lives and replace them with a new story, right? With a new song. One we've never ever seen before. One we never quite knew existed or at least thought could exist. One we had no category for ever. Cleopas didn't have a category for this, friends. Jesus' own disciples did not have a category for this. Nor do we. No one did. Which is why the resurrection proves God's love is real and true. Because his love for us will always, always, always defy our expectations. It'll blow our categories. And more importantly, it'll convince you that you are worth it. That you are worth it. What is keeping you from seeing him this morning? And whether that's for the first time or the thousandth time, to see this afresh, to see his love for you, to see his willingness to come and walk alongside of you, to be patient with you, to show you grace over all the stories that haunt you, right? All the bad parenting, the bad friendships, the bad breakups. He's willing to come alongside that and take it. And say, none of this keeps me from loving you. Let me give you a new story. A new one of hope and resurrection. May the grace of Jesus come into our lives and destroy every category, every expectation, every we had hoped story we have with the story of resurrection and truth. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message that unless you reveal yourself to us, we won't believe. We won't see it. We won't see our need for it. And we won't believe that someone could love us this much. What would it look like for you to do that this morning in all of us? To give us new eyes for your love for us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who is making all things new. Who is calling us to himself to be a people for himself. To be known in that way. Would you do this in us and through us for your glory alone we pray. Amen.